Thank you, Jennifer, and let's just commit this time to the Lord together. May the Lord speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of his tone. Amen. Um, If you came along this evening just uh, aching for me to explain to you the bit about the spirits in prison in verse 19, then I'm afraid you're too late. I uh, preached, I did actually preach on this, uh, uh, on this passage previously, and I said everything that I knew or could say about the spirits in prison and some of these other difficult things later on in the passage. And so if you can't remember what I had to say about that, then um, shame on you. <laughs> Mind you, it was ten years ago. Uh, <laughs> so uh, some of you are babes, babes in arms then. <laughs> um, But uh, I've decided, partly because we are in this particular period of uh, mission and outreach just at the moment with with Who Cares and and various other things going on, that I would focus just on one very famous uh, verse which is on many hearts and minds just at the moment, and it's verse 15. So it's 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 on page 1219 where Peter says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, An acquaintance of mine who I hadn't seen for some time was enthusing to me about his new job. He told me he doesn't pay as well as his previous job, but he's really, really enjoying it. All he has to do, he says, is to, as it were, stand around and chat to people about God. Well, that's what I thought I heard him say, but a split second later I realised that wasn't what he'd said. What he'd actually said was, I just need to stand around and chat to people about golf. (laughs) But it got me thinking... (laughs) How is it that we uh, and others can get so enthusiastic about so many other things, whether they're sports or family or holidays, um, or even in some cases our work, I, um, and yet struggle so much uh, to uh, enthuse others about what we say matters most to us, which is our faith in God, our faith in Christ. Why is it that it's sometimes our reticence amounts to fear, uh, really? Is it that our hearts are not really in it, this business of evangelism, of sharing Christ? Or is it that we simply don't know how to explain the Christian faith to others, we're just tongue-tied? Or is it that we don't want to be accused of ramming religion down people's throats or anything like that? Why is it that we are so reticent or even fearful about what we know we've been called to do as Christians. And uh, this idea of uh, speaking out and speaking up for the Christian message in the face of potential fear is very much what Peter is all about here. He's speaking to dispersed Christians, he's writing to dispersed Christians who were already facing um, inquiries and some of them antagonistic about their beliefs and behaviour, and they could expect it to get worse. 
And so there's a situation, I think, that's very parallel to our own times when uh, many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are in situations where they're under real threat because of their Christian faith. And it doesn't look as though it's going to get any easier for us even here in the traditionally safe United Kingdom. We need to think about how fearful we might be about being known as Christians, um, whether we uh, end up living at home or abroad. And I think this passage can help us and encourage us and instruct us immensely. Let me just take it, as it were, section by section uh, to see what Peter has to say to his readers uh, way back then and what he has to say to us now. The first thing he says, and perhaps the most important thing, really, that he says to us in, uh, in this matter of uh, not being afraid to share our Christian faith uh, with others, is this. In your hearts, he says, set apart Christ as Lord. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Which, as it were, being translated means, I suppose, make Jesus your number one deep down in reality and not just in appearance. It's actually a, 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 an allusion or a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8, um, where the, prophet, uh, the prophet's words are set apart, the Lord of hosts. But now do you see the, the status that Peter is giving to the Lord Jesus Christ by saying, not simply set apart the law, but set apart Christ as Lord. What a role, what a title, what a status Peter is giving to the Lord, who he had known so well and failed so spectacularly in the days of our Lord's flesh. If you make, Peter's reasoning seems to be this, if, you, if in your hearts if you're in, a, in, in your inner reality, you set apart Christ as Lord, if you make Jesus and his interests and his desires uh, number one in your life, then it will be bound to arouse people's interest. Because it will change your life and your attitudes and your behavior, and people will notice. And they may start asking you questions. Questions such as, why is it that you don't seem so motivated by material things as most other people, most normal people? Why is it that, now referring to what Peter says in verse 9, why is it that you do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but you respond when people hurt you with blessing? Why is it, people might ask us of Christians, uh, as Christians, why is it that you work, whether we are watching you or not, whether we are breathing down your neck or not, why is it that you work consistently with, uh, with honesty and integrity? And another question that might be raised uh, concerning uh, Christian uh, attitudes and behavior is this. Why do you not grieve as others grieve? Yes, when, as Christians, you lose loved ones and, and they die, yes, you grieve, but your grief is different. And I've heard of at least one person who is currently not, I think, a professing Christian, but who's coming along to our services here at Trinity 
partly because that person has noticed, has noted the attitudes toward death that Christians have. So our attitudes and behaviour as Christians should be likely to raise certain questions in people's minds. They will notice and ask questions, either friendly questions or sometimes antagonistic questions, but they will notice. Um, A a Christian man was talking to me very recently, saying that uh, he had uh, been building up, um, uh, um, making lots of money in his field of uh, of business, uh, using uh, sometimes shady means and leaving what, uh, leading what he referred to as very hedonistic, a very uh, 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 lifestyle, a lifestyle that was, that was focused on his own happiness and wealth and uh, fast cars and big houses and that kind of thing. He became a Christian and uh, he carried on working in that same place. But in becoming a Christian, he found a conscience <laughs> and so therefore had now a different attitude towards business dealings, business practices. That was noticed. And he was asked to leave that employment. Questions will be asked, sometimes friendly, sometimes hostile. But being a Christian should make a visible difference, an observable difference to those around us. And questions will be raised that we then have the opportunity to give some kind of answer to. The great Methodist uh, preacher and leader and evangelist, uh, John Wesley, gave this advice. He said, get on fire for Jesus and people will come and watch you burn. Being on fire for Jesus attracts attention. They may not love you for it, but they will notice it. In your hearts, says Peter, set apart Christ as Lord. And the more we do that under God, the more difference it will make. Now Peter then goes on in the middle of this verse to say this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, um, uh, scholars tell us that this, this, this phrase, give an answer, is a little bit weak. It translates the Greek word apologia, which is more often than not used in the New Testament for a legal defence. Remember when in Acts, Paul is hauled in front of various people and having to defend and explain his preaching of the gospel, Festus and Felix and Agrippa and people like that, Paul is hauled in front of. Invariably, the word that's used to describe his approach is that word apologia. He's making his legal defence. And that's the, the, the word that Peter uses here. I think that he has in mind those situations where Christians may find themselves interrogated because of their Christian faith, but also it doesn't exclude those other more informal situations where we might have a conversation, where people might be asking us about our Christian beliefs and behaviours. So Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to make a defence to everyone who asks you. So we're being expected to make a defence of some aspect of the Christian faith. Please note, we're not being asked to defend religion, although we believe in everybody's right to peaceably follow the religion of their choice, even though we may disagree with that religion. We believe in freedom of religion, as long as it's a peaceable religion. 
Neither are we being invited or asked to defend faith in the abstract, which is an exceedingly loose word nowadays. It stands for almost anything and everything. We're certainly not being asked to defend faith. Neither are we being asked to defend the church. Uh, There are many good things, wonderful things to be said about the witness and work of the Christian church, and also some pretty abysmal things too, uh, as the visible body of professing Christians down the years. No, we are being urged to mount a defence or to give the reason for the hope that we have. Interesting choice of word, isn't it? Hope. Uh, It's not very far... uh, not very different from the word faith, uh, but it is slightly different. Uh, it's, it's, it seems to be Peter's almost equivalent word uh, for, for faith, this word, this word hope. But it's a very notable word. I think it's a lovely word. I think when we think about all the things that as Christians we are against, like sin and <laughs> that kind of thing, to realise that at heart, Christianity, the Christian faith, is, uh, has to do with hope is a wonderful reassurance and a reminder to us all, do not think. And uh, now we've had the mention earlier in the service of a, 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 friend, a, a person who in a friendly way was prepared to declare himself to be an atheist. And there are some atheists around who think it's very liberating to be an atheist and to be rid of the shackles of belief in God. Uh, but there's been quite a lot of thought being given to the implications of actually being an atheist. A journalist called uh, Damon Linker um, has urged atheists to think about the tragedy of their lack of belief. Now, the fact that atheism lacks hope doesn't make it wrong, but it does make it tragic. Damon Linker says this, if atheism is true, it is far from being good news. Learning that we're alone in the universe, that no one hears or answers our prayers, that humanity is entirely the product of random events, that we have no more intrinsic dignity than non-human or even non-animate clumps of matter, that we face certain annihilation at death, that our sufferings are ultimately pointless, that our lives and loves do, do not matter at all in a larger sense, that those who commit horrific evils and elude human punishment get away with their crimes scot-free. All of this, he says, and much more, is utterly tragic. In contrast, as Christians, we are people of and with hope. Peter doesn't define the Christian hope here because he's already done so. You glance back at, uh, at verse 3 and 4 of, of chapter 1. Peter has just begun with praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in fact, that whole passage in chapter 1 is about the splendor, the glory of the Christian hope, which does not mark you as simply pie in the sky when you die. You know, life is miserable now, but better in the, in the by and by. The mention of the resurrection of Christ reminds us the fulfilment of that hope has begun already. The new life in Christ is now. There's more, much more to come, but it has become now. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows it 
and proves it. We're living in those in-between times when the old things are passing away and we look forward to the hope of a new heaven and a new new earth, the home of righteousness, as Peter says in his second epistle. And we're expected to be able to give the reason for this hope. Now, people these days, it seems to me, are far too eager uh, and willing to put a wedge between hope and reason, between faith and evidence. Professor Dawkins famously described faith as the great cop-out, that faith is simply belief in the absence or even in, in, in the face, in the teeth of evidence. Uh, a more ris- a recent Christian writer has said that faith is believing something that you know isn't true. Isn't that astonishing? That isn't a Christian definition of faith at all. Peter can talk here about reasons for hope and can expect us to be able to articulate something about those reasons. Now, hope and reason, faith and evidence are not enemies, they are friends. Reason points us, if you will, towards the right train. That's the train to get on. It runs at that time. And faith is the commitment that gets us onto the train and actually moving uh, and committing ourselves to the journey. One important line of reasoning that I would like to commend to you is that of eyewitness testimony. That is to say that the Gospels um, are based on the the witness, the testimony of those who were there at the time. Read, if you will, the first few verses of Luke's Gospel and see how he is setting out his story by saying, I went out and I researched, I talked to these people, in my view, including Mary, uh, mother of Jesus. I talked to these people and they told me what had happened. Mark's Gospel... I am convinced, has the fingerprints of Peter all over it. And John's, in fact, is the only gospel that actually claims, actually written by somebody who's actually an eyewitness. A lot of recent research into this business about the New Testament, uh, the gospels in particular, being written by, very clearly, with a number of indications and lines of evidence by those who were actually there. I mean, you didn't know that anyway. But it's a a line of reasoning you can take with your more sceptical friends and inquirers. Um, uh, Peter is, uh, in his just glance on to the beginning of his second epistle, chapter 1 and verse 16, and he makes the point very clearly about this. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty probably a reference in particular to that, that wonderful, extraordinary event, the Transfiguration. And let's be prepared to give some of those reasons. Be in a constant state of readiness. Let's look out for opportunities. Let's give it some thought beforehand. Let's study the example of Jesus and how he turned so often everyday situations, a meal around a table, a ch- an apparently chance meeting with a woman at a well, into opportunities to speak about the deep things of God. And also study how Jesus asked and answered questions. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I must move on. Peter says, uh, lastly in uh, in in, in this verse, do all of this with gentleness 
and respect. With gentleness. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 15 and verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. It wouldn't always. Sometimes people will be upset with you and hostile with you because of your beliefs. But you can often win over a potentially hostile person by a gentle, a caring, a compassionate, a patient uh, answer. It seems to me that a big part of our gentleness, our considerateness uh, as Christian uh, uh, witnesses, evangelists, apologists, uh, call them what you will, is our willingness to listen to people and not simply hit them overhead with our Bibles. Take the example of somebody who's described like this. His thoughts were slow, his words were few, and never formed to glisten. But he was a joy to all his friends. You should have heard him listen. One of my students, I teach nurses, well, until I retired officially a few months ago, uh, taught nurses for many years. And one of my students pointed out this little tip, practical tip about listening. If somebody else tells you something about themselves, then in your response, try to go at least one whole sentence without talking about yourself. Spend at least one sentence listening to, responding to, reflecting back what that person had just said to them about themselves. Try it. It's ever so hard, because we just want to talk about ourselves all the time. But remember, God has given us two ears and just one mouth, as though he wants to remind us that um, either listening is twice as important as talking, or that it's twice as difficult, probably both. And respect here, when he says do this with gentleness and respect, um, it, it translates the, the Greek word phobos, fear. I don't think it's talking about no, it's gentleness towards other people. I think this is respect, fear, reverence towards God. Uh, because Peter has been saying, don't fear people. Uh, don't be afraid of people. There's a line in a hymn that says, fear him, fear God, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. And our fear of God is a reverence, it's an awe, it's not a craven fear. As one of the Puritans uh, said, I think, um, I fear God, but I'm not afraid of him. Important distinction. So, in conclusion, uh, a Christian writer and um, uh, speaker called Krish Kandaya um, suggests a number of things that we ought to avoid uh, in seeking to commend uh, our Christian hope to others. Don't be an Avon lady. Avon ladies, I mean, the character of an Avon lady would be a person who picks on people uh, to try and sell them stuff, and if they don't show any interest, then just drop them and move on to somebody else, a more likely target. You know, the people we talk to are not targets, they're, they're people, so don't be Avon ladies. Don't be, he says, a call centre salesperson, simply reading off a script. Um, I think a good piece of advice is to not sorry, avoid, but not rely over much on standard point-by-point point, uh, summaries of the gospel, you know, four spiritual laws and these kind of things, but rather view the sharing of the gospel and the Christian hope as telling the story of Jesus and not reading the script because you don't know how the other person will, will, uh, will respond. Don't, he says, be a mime artist. That is to say that think that your, your actions can do all the talking for you. Peter's emphasised Christian behaviour, Christian action, all the way through this. But he also emphasises the importance of opening our mouths and talking. We must commend the gospel by our behaviour, but communicate it by our words. 
There's a saying attributed to to St. Francis of Assisi, who is said to have said, preach the gospel at all times using words if necessary. He probably never said such a thing, and since since he himself preached five times a day, I don't think he would have said that. Um, But if anybody says you can preach the gospel without uh, without, uh, using words, it's not possible. You commend, it's vitally important to commend the gospel by your behavior, but it must be spoken. Be an apologist. Be a defender of the faith. Speak of your hope. Be positive and don't pretend to know all the answers. And Peter says very little about the chance of success. Do you see what it says in verse 16 about what the likely outcome might be of all this defending that you do about the Christian truth? That they may be ashamed. It's a bit disappointing this morning, isn't it? But do you th- I wonder if he remembered when he wrote that they may be ashamed uh, when you say this stuff about the, about the gospel. I wonder if he remembered another time when he spoke and people were ashamed. On the day of Pentecost, he told those people that they had been responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ, but Jesus had been raised from the dead. When, they, when people heard him say that, they were cut to the heart. They were ashamed. And they said, what shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. And the Holy Spirit was at work, and 3,000 came to faith, living faith in Christ in that one day, and millions since that day. So even shame can have its place. With the Holy Spirit on our side, or we on the Holy Spirit's side, then we can hope and expect and pray for a degree of success that we'd never even uh, dreamt of, let alone prayed for. God is able to do with his spirit far more in a single day than we with our own methods can do in a whole lifetime. Let us pray. Our gracious God, make us into willing and joyful apologists, defenders um, of the Christian faith. Uh, Fill us with hope. May share that message with hope in any and every way. Give us eyes to see the opportunities, hearts to love those who do not yet know you, and a commitment to set aside and set apart Jesus as Lord so that we want to please him more than anything or anyone else. In his name we pray. Amen.